Morning, church. How are we today? Good. Uh, nice to be back with you again. Um, this isn't the first time I've stood on this platform. Uh, if you were here on December 21st, it was the last time I was on this platform, and I was introduced as the new youth pastor here at Lakeside. Um, prior to that, if you're using your thinking caps, the last time I was on this platform preaching uh, was Easter Sunday message in 2012, which seems like a lifetime ago for me, really. Um, it was before I'd ever stepped foot in this place in Halliburton called the Main Street Res. And back when the rec room, which we talked a little bit about, at 50 York Street was curves for women. So it's come a long way there. <laughs> it was before I went and I spent 18 months serving and eventually on staff at another church here in Halliburton. Before my third child was ever even thought of or conceived. Before I'd even wrapped my head around this idea that I could actually own my own home and before I'd even ever think that I would move to Minden of all places. <laughs> Can anything good come from Minden, right? Um, a lot can happen in three years, right? And uh, now I've returned to this place where I began my discipleship journey ten years ago. And uh, I'm returning to this place to be welcomed back, not just a member as a member of the church, but as a staff member, a youth pastor. I said I was humbled when I stood here in December, and I'm still humbled, but I'm laser focused on where this church is going as a ministry. Not just with youth ministry, but all the ministries here at Lakeside. From Shepherd's Table, to Sunday School, to WOW, to the Women's Billiards in the Book, to the Missions Team, to Jericho Road, Helping Hands. We are one body and we have so many parts and each part is so important to the other and we all have so much we can give, so much that we've been blessed with, so much to be thankful for as a body. We have so much we're able to do with our resources, right? Our time and our talents and our treasures. You see, we, the one thing I've learned over my journey is we need to give. I need to give back. It's as much about being a Christian, I think, as anything. We don't give to get something, right? We give because we got something. We got something that had such a high price attached to it. It was bought with the steepest price ever. And so I give out of this outpouring of love for God for what He's done. So give in a way that you're commanded to do, right? We, we talked, uh, I think, last month uh, about not giving out of our remainders, right? Giving out of our first fruits. And so continue giving if it's giving your time. Time is so valuable. Give it. If it's your talents, remember you are part of the body and everybody has a function in here. Everybody has a function. And if it's your treasures... Keep doing that as well. All this money and possessions and stuff, it all belongs to Him anyway, right? When you give of your money, you get this return that you will even never really get the, the impression of how big it is on this earth. Now this isn't even close to a prosperity message I'm giving you today. I'm not telling you to give $1,000 a month to the church because you'll get it back and then some. But give to the church to support the ministry work here. This church needs to grow in order that we can reach more people and the grow people that we've reached and reach out into this community and show them that no one can love them more than we can. But I didn't come here today to preach to you about giving, although some of you, and you know who you are, are being misers with at least one of these T's, whether it's your time, your talent, or your treasures. But that's between you and God. Funny story, I got rejected the first time 
I uh, applied to be a youth worker. That was four years ago. It's true. Perhaps it had something to do with the raw way that I responded when I told the interviewers in all candor. I said, look, if I had my choice, I wouldn't be in youth ministry. It's probably not exactly the best thing to say to an organization that works solely with youth. But at that point in my journey, it was true. I was, I felt, God, I'm not equipped for this. I have no patience with kids. I want to work with older guys with addiction issues and help them. Not come up with fun ways to kill time with prepubescent youth, or even worse, pubescent youth. And so that organization granted me my wish, right? They phoned me and they said that I wasn't a good candidate for the job. And I can remember waking that night, and I can remember it so clearly now as I look back. I woke up in the middle of the night with something heavy on my heart, and I just couldn't sleep. And you can ask my wife, I don't even wake up in the middle of the night and can't sleep, even with a, an eight-month-old baby. But I woke up and something hit me right in the face, and this wasn't supposed to happen. You know, I wasn't supposed to be rejected. It just felt completely wrong to me. And there's someone I know and love here who taught, who taught me that it's not people rejecting me, right? It's God directing me. And so what I did is I continued to serve in that ministry. You know, I could have just walked away from it and been bitter and just felt rejected, but I served through that. And God continued the work He'd begun in me like Scripture promises. And we started to see this thing take, take form. And six months later, those same interviewers who I felt had rejected me, they welcomed me as part of their team. And the next two years weren't easy. But I was working in God's will. And the fruit was there and the calling for me to work with young people was confirmed time and time again. And when I walked away from that ministry, it wasn't because the work was done. By no means. It's because as a team, we'd seem to let our human emotions, our humanness, our personalities override the way that God was shaping each one of us. I think this is still a challenge for everyone in ministry to communicate effectively through our humanness and to work things out and bear each other's weaknesses. But if we're united through the Spirit working in us, it's possible. So I'm here to, here with you today, back with you, back with the youth, part of a vibrant ministry here at Lakeside. We get together every Friday night and we have a few laughs and sometimes we just talk about what color the dress was. <laughs> we all know that it's white and gold, right? Okay, good. <laughs> sometimes that's just one part of what we do is talk about the color of the dress. But you see, we support each other and we care for each other. And... uh we try to we try to move forward with these kids and and as leaders we try and bring God's truth into the periphery of these kids' lives. Be, um, I think what we're doing has been materialized in really three sentences. We want to see every youth we come into contact with get to know Jesus, and those uh, who know Jesus, we want to help them to grow in Christ. And finally, we want to equip the youth uh, who start uh, who are growing to start to show Jesus to their world. And we've got to remember that their world is not our world. We need to be sensitive to the fact that our youth today who know Jesus are really operating in, uh, in one of the most disgusting cultures, culturally depraved, mind-boggling worlds that mankind has ever known. Scripture says the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they can't see the light of the Gospel that displays the glory of Christ. Christ. 
who is the image of God. So we move through culture with this sensitivity to those who don't know because how lost are those who are lost today? We're not talking about somebody just sitting idly in a desert somewhere alone, letting their mind just wander here or there. That's one kind of lost. But we're talking about a full frontal assault on the minds and hearts of non-believers 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, add one in a leap year. And some of our kids, our precious children, are trapped right in the heart of this. So we look to God to change hearts, to make breakthroughs, to do which by our human standards seems impossible. And God's still in that business. Amen? Anyway, that's the pre-sermon for today. Uh, I'm here to continue our journey through First Peter. And before I go any further, let's open in a word of prayer before we get into God's Word. Morning, God. Here we are. Your people, God. We've come here and we've gathered. And uh, there's joy in this place, God. And there's love and there's peace in this place. God, uh, we're here because we love You. We love each other. Uh, we love we love the idea of church. We love the idea of getting together and being able to do things like dedicate babies and and celebrate the Lord's Supper. God, thank you for the freedom that we have through Jesus Christ. God, as we get into your Word today, I just pray that that it would it would just penetrate our hearts in a new way. God, that we would look at a scripture that maybe we've looked at one time, ten times, a hundred times, and we just take something away from that scripture that's for us today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so here we are. Five weeks in, right, to our 900-week journey through the book of 1 Peter. That's what you said, right? (laughs) It's not that long, but as Pastor Paul outlined in week one, this book is so chock full of great stuff, doctrine, theology, that many have spent longer in it than we have. We've been following Peter's life and his journey, and we heard uh, in the first week just who this Peter is. We met that man in a trip back into the Gospels, and Peter's a disciple's disciple, right? He's the one that I think people, when they're reading Scripture, they want to put themselves in his shoes or put put themselves into John's shoes, right? Nobody wants to be Simon the Zealot. Nobody wants to be the other Judas. You know, he's just mentioned as the other Judas in in Scripture. So it's Peter, right? And, and, And Peter's not for the faint of heart, because who gets corrected in Scripture more than Peter, right? Who pulls more boneheaded moves than Peter? I mean, he walked on water only to fall in, right? He told Jesus that he'd follow him anywhere, and then he denied him three times in one night. Like This guy gave up everything to follow Jesus, and as we learned in in previous weeks, he picked everything back up just as quickly and got back to the fishing once Jesus was dead. Pastor Paul stood Peter up as as the apostle of hope. And it is this hope today that we're going to talk about some more. Now, when Pastor Paul asked me a number of weeks ago to speak to you about this passage, it seemed like an easy one for me, really. After all, he knew that this passage is one of those cornerstone verses that my ministry to the people of the Main Street Res and the rec room is is built on top of. I thought for sure this is going to be one of those Ron Popeil type, you know, sermons, right? Where you remember Ron Popeil? The rotisserie grill, set it and forget it, right? So I thought for sure this is just a set it and forget it sermon. Obviously, I can talk about 1 Peter 3.15, right? If not me, then who? 
So I thanked him for the opportunity for letting me share the pulpit during this great sermon series. And I'm like, right on, Pastor, you served me up this big, huge hanging slider that I can just crank out of the park, you know, get some handshakes on the way out of here, say, uh, get a few high fives in food land, and then go home and get just showered with praise all afternoon by my wife, right? That's what I was thinking. Well, not so fast, right? Sitting on a beach in Florida as well at the time, it seemed like a lot easier as well. I'm just like, hey, what can go wrong, right? But as I listened along on the website, which is www.mylakeside.ca, so if you happen to miss a week, you don't have to miss the message. You can log on there, and the messages are usually up within 20 minutes of the service ending, right, Trudy? <laughs> just joking. They get up there during the week sometime, and, and uh, they're great to be able to listen to. So I was listening down in Florida, and I actually saw that this this hanging slider that had seemed to be just coming in so juicy for me to crank out of the park looked like it might be a bit of a change-up. As you can see, my sports metaphors are a little bit lacking. Normally, for those who know me, I'm, I'm just chock full of NFL references throughout my sermons, but with the NFL season, 193 days away from starting, I had to pick up some baseball, uh, baseball uh, metaphors. As I got deeper and deeper into Pastor Paul's sermons, the meatball pitch that I thought I saw coming in looking like, it was looking like it was starting to cut, and the fact that I'm stepping in to continue something that Pastor Paul has started and brought so clearly and deliberately to this point, well, all of a sudden I wasn't feeling so thankful for him letting me step in and preach. Just don't strike out is ringing in my head, right? And then Pastor Paul decided to share uh, what is sure to be his five-star cold with everyone in the church office. That's him without his glasses on, obviously, and a little bit of a bigger forehead. But uh, but uh, he shared it with everyone in the office equally. And uh, so I've been a bit of a walking zombie for parts of the week, juggling three jobs. That's That was me at the rec room earlier this week. And then to top it all off, my father-in-law, Jim Cowling, who a lot of you know here, there's, there's Jim. He's kind of like a deer in the headlights. I think that's at a buffet down in Florida. It's funny, you look at holiday pictures. I don't know if this is anything like your family, but you look at the holiday pictures and you see all these pictures of you know, me with my children and me with my wife and my wife with my children. And the grandparents are the ones that took us to Florida, but that's the only picture I have of, of Jim. <laughs> So Jim, Jim calls me on Friday from his winter home in Florida. And those of you who know Jim, he's, he's just a prayer warrior. He just spends so much time in prayer, praying for this church, praying for different missionaries. And so I got this message from him. And he said he got this message in prayer. And he said, don't try and impress anyone. <laughs> just bring the message God wants you to bring. Okay? So I blame my father-in-law if you're not impressed with this. I'm not here to impress. I'm just here to bring this message, right? No pressure. No pressure at all. So we're going to dive into this short passage. I thank you in advance for your grace, and I thank you again, Pastor, for all that you continue to do. Really, I do. Okay, so what I want to do today is I want to use our Scripture as a vehicle, right? A former pastor of mine, he called the New King James Version of the Bible, he, uh, he likened it to a Cadillac. He called it the Cadillac of Bibles. And I'm not sure if in his class of Scripture there was a Mercedes, Olaf, where, well, I'm not sure if there was a Mercedes or a BMW. I don't know if he had different classes there. Um, I reasoned that my NIV Bible that I use was kind of akin to a, a, a Toyota. All right? It's popular. You see a lot of them on the roads. 
Uh, doesn't break down much. Great fuel efficiency. Gets you where you want to go. Affordably. Doesn't cost a fortune. Anyone can use it, right? But the more I went through this car analogy in my head, and by no means am I a car guy or a truck guy whatsoever, but I thought about it some more, and this was probably during this 45-minute sermon that I, they were doing that day, I think the translation doesn't matter one bit, whether it's CEV, KJV, NKJV, NIV, NLT. I think what we have here in this book is a DeLorean. Does anyone remember the DeLorean? The DeLorean, <laughs> the DeLorean right? This is the project of automaker John DeLorean and manufactured between 1981 and 1983. About 9,000 of them were made. Now, I'm not talking about this particular DeLorean here. The DeLorean I'm talking about is the one specific, and somebody mentioned it already, to the movie franchise Back to the Future. This is the DeLorean, right? The retrofitted with the flux capacitor, and when it reached a certain speed, it would go backwards or forwards in time. Follow me here, okay? So this is what we have here with the Holy Bible, with Scripture. It's a DeLorean, right? Because it takes us back to these times of historical events, right? Where we can meet people who actually live, like meet people like Moses, meet people uh, like, like King David. Um, but then it also uh, takes us to the future, right? We have this view of, of what's to come, the end of the world, through the apocalyptic travels of, of the Apostle John in the book of Revelation. But then we have these present-day applications, right? So we have this word that was written 2,000 or 3,000 years ago for the people back then, but it has this application for us today. And so today as we get into this DeLorean together with our flux capacitor fully juiced to 1.21 gigawatts, because you know that's what you have to have to get there, I want us to read this passage that Peter wrote to a group of believers whose bones have long turned to dust, and we're going to look at it from back to the future, okay? A lot of people want to walk out of sermons with, with life application stuff. Uh, well, today's your lucky day, because this is all about applying these few verses uh, to our lives today. So are we ready? Here we go. I'm reading from the NIV, so I'm reading from the Toyota. Who is going to harm you if you're eager to do good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Now verse 14 takes us back to this idea that, that Pastor Paul uh, fleshed out really well this idea of suffering, right? He outlined a month ago that that the letter of First Peter is really about how to live this victorious Christian life amidst the suffering that's going on. Peter talks about suffering for doing good. As Pastor Paul outlined, uh, going through the entire chapter 2 of First Peter, and this suffering that Peter's talking about is is much different than the suffering that we're going that's going on in our lives today, right? I mean, praise God that someone didn't break into your house last night, rip you out of bed, uh, kill your son, take your wife and daughter, uh, put you in a cage for no other reason that they know that you belong to Christ. Thank God that none of us, I pray, ever have to go through that kind of suffering because that's what's going on in other places in the world today, right? 
But this principle of where we place our hope amidst our sufferings, whether it's through our sufferings of our job or our, or our marriage or our children and these things, the principle of where we put, put our hope in the heart of these struggles is just the same. It's, it's not to minimize our suffering. We ride this passage back to present day. God cares really when we hurt. And He cares when we hurt for doing the right things that He cares about. The key in these verses is we can't be afraid of any earthly threats to us, right? Now Jesus Himself said in Matthew 10.28, He said, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now this leads us into this idea of the fear of the Lord, right? That's what Jesus is talking about. He's like, don't worry about the bad guys out there. They can't kill the soul. But God can, right? And that's not going to make you afraid of God. This is, we're not talking about fearing Him, but having this, this, this idea of revering God because of that. For who He is, it's now plainly in our sight. Proverbs 7 says, Fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Now those of us today who know Jesus, we definitely don't want to be fools, right? Moving right on to the next part of this passage, it says, In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. This is time for us to to look at our own hearts and our own self, right? What is the work that He has done and is doing in our hearts? Do we still have that reverence for Him as Lord over everything in our life? Like, if this is all about our personal relationship with God, right? Everybody talks about that, that we want a personal relationship with, with God through Jesus Christ. Are we working on our own planks in our eyes more than working on our neighbor's specks? Are we growing in this relationship with Christ? You see, relationship really is built on communication. The more we communicate, the closer we become. Is our relationship with Christ a long-distance relationship? Now, these, the young people here wouldn't really get this reference, but has Jesus become a forgotten pen pal? There's no such thing as pen pals today, right? Nobody, do people pen pal still? No, they're saying no. <laughs> or are we looking to communicate with Him? Are we looking to cry out to Him, to worship Him, to read His Word, to get His Word into us, right? Because that's the part of the knowledge we just talked about. Today with so many versions of the Bible out there and free audio versions available on the internet, there's simply no reason for us not to be building this reverence for Christ in our own lives by allowing Him to reign over every aspect. Do we let Him into the places that we don't want to let Him go into? If we in our own hearts are revering Christ as Lord, then it should be permeating into our behaviors, our actions. Pastor Paul talked about this in the second installment of our series. These 20 calls to specific behavior that Peter outlines and the big ones that we talked about were abstaining from lust, doing right, love the Christians, submit to every human authority. On our Dr. Phil scale, so how's that working for you? My Dr. Phil needs some work, I know. but Because if we're revering Christ as Lord then there should be these very specific, very quantifiable, very deliberate behaviors that are springing out from that, right? If Christ is Lord and we're revering Him as such, 
We need to live like free people, remember? But there's that caveat at the end of it. Don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So what is Jesus asking you to look at in your own life right now? For me, the big one continues to be, believe it or not, submitting to every human authority. Especially when those human authorities are wrong, right? That makes it even harder. Whether you've got an overbearing boss, I'm not making any reference here, ambassador. You've got someone in your life right now, I guarantee it, who's in an authority position over you that some part of you is struggling with submitting to that authority. I mean, this past week with the province of Ontario coming out with this new sex ed curriculum, Facebook and Twitter was just a buzz with all this stuff going on. But you know what? We're submitting to the authority of the government of Ontario and our province, and we're going to work through that. And God's going to work all things anyway through it. So I'm not, I'm not scared of, of curriculum. We don't have to intrinsically believe in every single thing that this authority is telling us, but we need to respect the fact, right? God says that our ways are not His ways, and the ways of the world are not our ways either. So we've got this first part, revering Christ as Lord in our own hearts. And the next part is really easy. It doesn't, it's not going to take too long to go over it. It's always be prepared to answer those who ask. Be prepared, right? Like the Boy Scouts. That's their motto. Be prepared. Stand ready. Make sure we're never caught off guard. And it says to answer people who ask. They have to ask. That's what the passage is saying. They have to ask you. At some point in your relationship, they've crossed over from just a casual observer to actually being an inquisitor in your life. See, this is the biggest reason that we need to form relationships, real relationships, with the unchurched and the unbelieving world. Because how is somebody going to ask you for anything if they aren't around you, if they don't know you? In my ministry to the people of the Main Street Res and the Rec Room, it's all about proximity, right? We need to be around people for a while so we get the chance to get to these next level questions. Someone may ask you for the time. They might ask you where the washroom is. They might ask you for directions. But to get to that next level of personal sharing, there needs to be a relationship. Now either you work with them, you play hockey with them, your kids play hockey together, you're in a book club with them, your kids are friends. There's got to be some real world reason why you're associating with each other. This can't be the only people you're hanging out with in this room, right? And God's working behind the scenes. This is the good news. We don't have to do the hard work. God's working behind the scenes in those people's lives that we don't see. And He's softening their hearts and He's using their circumstances in their own lives to bring them to a point where He can reach out and grab their attention. He got your attention at some point, right? Remember that. Remember the Christian people who are all floating around in your life before you came face to face with the truth of who Jesus is and why you need Him in your life. Which leads us right into that. Which is the reason for the hope that you have. I think this is what keeps me in ministry, I think. Or what allows me at age 40 the ability to speak to young people about Jesus Christ. It's because I haven't grown so old in the faith or matured so much to the point where I can't still remember the stench of my own sin. The remember when. The bitter taste of it. I remember the hopelessness of my sin. 
How it ruled me. How it controlled me. I can share hope with those who are hopeless because I remember what it felt like to be hopeless. I can remember when hope came from a glass of drink and when I got to the bottom, I'd have to fill it up again because my hope wasn't there. I was feeling empty. I can share God's love with the unloved because I remember what it felt like to feel unloved. I can remember sorrow that was so wide and so deep that I had to give it a name. I called it my pit of depression. And I would laugh when I talked about it. I'd tell people, I'm going to my pit of depression now, and I'd have to laugh about it. Because if I wasn't laughing, I'd be bawling my eyes out. I remember getting a tract when I was 19 years old, when I was working in a gas station. I got this tract. And it says, do you want to live forever on the front? Do you want eternal life? And at that point in my life, I said, eternal life? Are you kidding me? What if you hate your life so much and feel worthless and wish you were dead? What value does living forever have when you want to be dead? What I needed Jesus for was that that moment, I didn't need Jesus to save me from some invisible hell that I had no idea of. I needed hope right then, right there. I didn't need Jesus to save me from the unseen. The reality of hell, I needed Him to show me life now, show me love now, show me joy now, show me peace now. Never mind the forever. Anyone else feel that they need that grace, that amazing grace right now in their lives? The reason for the hope that we have is that once I was away from God, and now He's living in me. I have hope because He gave it to me through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the hope, right? We sing all these songs about it. The hope living in us. The rock in whom we trust. We have hope because we believe. Our faith is built on belief. Belief in Christ is what it's all about. In fact, if we take our DeLorean for a moment and go back in time, Jesus actually tells His disciples, He says, I'm going away, right? He says, it's a good thing that I am because I'm going to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. And He's going to come and He's going to be with you and He's going to be in you. And Jesus Himself says in John, the 16th chapter, verse 9, He says, the Holy Spirit's going to come and it's going to convict the world that they're wrong about sin, about righteousness, and about judgment. It says people are wrong about sin because they do not believe in Me. Imagine that everything just boils down to one simple thing. Do you believe in Jesus? John 3.16, right? Those who believe will have eternal life. Those are the teachings from the past that have been now brought up to the future for us to celebrate now. We can, we can share this hope that we have with those who ask us for the reason. But, and Scripture has buts in it, right? Here's the big but. 1 Peter 3.15 says that we are to do this with what? Gentleness and respect. No matter what car is in your garage, whether it's the Cadillac, the Toyota, the, the Dodge Cummins diesel, whatever translation you have, the ESV and NIV is, is say gentleness and respect. The, the King James Version and New King James have say meekness and fear. Um, the NASB says gentleness and reverence. This word, gentleness, is from the Greek. The New Testament was written in Greek, so it's from the Greek, right? And it's this idea of praetitosh, praetitosh, right? My Greek isn't great, obviously. Um, 
But it's spoken about. This word is spoken about a dozen times in the New Testament. And here are just a few of them. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4.21, he says, What do you prefer? I come with a rod of correction or with love in a spirit of praetitosh? A spirit of gentleness. And in 2 Corinthians 10.1, it says, uh, this is as Paul begins a defense of his ministry. It says, By the meekness and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. And then in Galatians, who can forget Galatians 5.23, a great collection of words to put on your wall and put pictures of your family or some other thing, a project on Pinterest. But it's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, praetitosh, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. We see this gentleness as something that is spiritual. It's not something we're going to reach into our human toolbox and pull out and administer it to people as we go. It's much like this agape, this agapao love. The thing that we talked about a few weeks ago, this love that comes from the love of God. This priety tosh is also not of this world as it, as it indicates from these passages. Paul is talking about this priety tosh of Christ. This gentleness that is different from the gentleness of a mother with her newborn. Now being a part of the fruit of the Spirit, it should make us pause as we try to imagine this gentleness we should be sharing with those who ask us for a reason for the hope that we have. The respect part seems easy, right? Gentleness and respect. If we have relationships built with people that are real, we're mutually respecting each other as human beings, as adults, as people who have free will. We should be applying respect to everybody we come in contact with, but when you have this relationship built with someone else that doesn't have any condescending undertones or judgmental attitudes, as you yourself are revering Christ as Lord in your own hearts, and you fully embraced this new hope that Christ has given you, something that wasn't around before, if you let all of that flow, you will find this gentleness, this praetitosh, just appears. It does. And that's okay. Because it's not from you, it's from Christ. It is this meekness, which is never weakness, understand. He displayed this to the woman he caught in adultery in Scripture. When he stooped down and wrote in the sand, and he said, You who are without sin, be the first to throw the stone, knowing himself that he was the only one who was without sin out of any of those people. And one by one they went away, and he said in gentleness, he said, Neither do I condemn you now. Go and leave your life of sin. A direct order from the Lord of everything, but done with gentleness. Or the conversation he had with the woman at the well. The first recorded water cooler discussion, right? Actually, it wasn't. That was way back in Genesis, but we'll deal that with another time. Um, he sat with this woman and he asked her for a drink. And that, thing, that just didn't happen back then. This was a Samaritan well. A Jewish man talking to a Samaritan woman just didn't happen. And this conversation he has with her where she says, he, tells, he told me everything I'd ever done. And it says that many Samaritans from that town believed and had to have something to do with that that praetitosh, that gentleness that Jesus exhibited while staying on the matter of the truth. 
Or how Jesus dined with sinners and tax collectors. He associated with prostitutes. How he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. The Messiah on a donkey. That's meek, right? That's meek. And meek is not weak. You see, this piety, this gentleness, it isn't part of me. It's not something as I have in my toolbox of, of human virtue. You know, there's sympathy and empathy, which somehow I do horribly with at times. And there's caring and understanding, human emotions, but this gentleness isn't those things. It's from His Spirit living in, in me, living in you, working through you. It is this fruit that we are producing that we share with those that we come into relationship with that softens the blow of this horrible truth that without Jesus we are all dead. Without Jesus there is no hope. Without Jesus there is no eternal life. But this gentleness is what allows people to see that truth and feel convicted, but not leave us in the position that we somehow feel we have to dance around the truth or make an easy-to-swallow gospel presentation, which ends up usually falling short of what the message really is. The Spirit guides this gentleness if we let Him. So as we close, why gentleness at all? Why use gentleness? I think one good reason is the simplest one. Is Does the reverse work? Does the opposite work? Has anyone ever been argued or debated into accepting Christ? I've seen those debates and arguments and they usually just end with, up with people raising their voice and getting flustered and walking away from each other. No one's ever been berated into accepting Christ. So if the rough road doesn't work, then the gentle road must be the way. And remember, just because you're meek doesn't mean you're weak. We have the power of Christ living in us. There's no weakness in Him. Look at what we get out of it in verse 16. It says, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Our conscience stays clear. We focus on the truth. We do it in gentleness. And and our conscience stays clear. And it gives us peace, right? How often do we feel that We just want to share the Gospel with somebody and there's all these feelings inside of us where we're wrapped up and we don't have that peace and we're wound so tight and it's Thanksgiving dinner or it's Easter dinner or whatever and we just want to, maybe this will be the time that Uncle Bob will finally come to the truth of the Gospel and that we don't have that pride tosh, right? We're trying to do it under our own power. You see, others are going to concoct their own view of you anyway, right? What you're all about. But if you're revering Christ as Lord... You're behaving in such a way that demonstrates this. And you're prepared to give a reason for the hope that you have. And you do it with gentleness and respect. It doesn't matter what they say, right? Because as the song says, the haters are going to hate, 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 right? I was going to put up the YouTube video, but... I really like what the contemporary English version says. I'm just going to read this as we close. Honor Christ. Let Him be the Lord of your life. Always be ready to give an answer when someone asks you about your hope. Give a kind and respectful answer. And keep your conscience clear. This way you will make people ashamed for saying bad things about your conduct as a follower of Christ. Let's pray. God, it's just a few verses and it's a lot to take in. and it's, There's a lot of application for ourselves today, God. So we just pray by the power of Your Spirit as we leave here today, God, that uh, whatever word was meant for us today, 
whatever part of this service was was here to encourage us and to lift us up, God, that it would just uh, just take firm root in our hearts as we leave here today. God, we pray that we can in our own hearts continue to revere You as Lord, God. That by our choices and behaviors, that we appear to others to be as set apart and holy as You have made us. God, we pray that, that we'd be ready whenever we're needed, God. That You continue to grow us and shape us and mold us in Your grace. God, we pray that You'd continue to open doors to relationships we can have with the everyday people in our lives outside these walls. God, we pray that You'll soften their hearts and You'll build and You'll allow us to build relationships so when it rains in their life or when it's really sunny in, the, in ours, they would just ask us for the reason, for the hope. And God, we'd be able to share that hope, our hope, God. The hope that You gave each one of us across the board and individually. And that we do it with Your gentleness, Jesus through the power of Your Spirit. And God, when they experience this gentleness, they would see that it's You working. It's not us. God, we thank You for hearing our prayer and for moving in our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.